Welcome to the Triathlete Hour. This week, we're talking to the one, the only, the legendary Craig Alexander. Even though he's semi-retired, kind of, Craig is still training for fun, winning the occasional race last year at the age of 47, and enjoying the sport. He talks to us about what changes he made as he got older, what he learned over the years, and how sometimes you just have to batten down the hatches and ride out the storm. And first, we're giving you a sneak peek at our new gear podcast, Gear Up. This week, all about carbon wheels, why they're getting cheaper, how disc brakes are helping that happen, and how much it really costs to make a set of wheels. Subscribe to Triathlete Magazine on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you listen to hear that new podcast and to be sure not to miss any future episodes. All right, this week we're talking to our senior editor, Chris Foster, who is hosting our new gear podcast, which you guys can catch on our feeds, you know, subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, all those places. And Chris, this week was your guys' first episode of Gear Up, and I hear you talked about carbon wheels. Yeah, that's because there's nothing more exciting than carbon in the world of <laughs> gear for triathletes. Nothing gets triathletes' attentions like the word carbon. So yeah, we went with carbon wheels as an inaugural podcast episode, of course. Okay. And uh, and I hear like the big thing about carbon wheels is that they're getting a lot cheaper, which is good. And part of that has to do with disc brakes, right? And I'm, I'm not sold on disc brakes, but if they're making carbon wheels cheaper, then that's, you know, that's an upside. Yeah. I mean, like we were discussing this before. I mean, triathletes don't need like tons of braking power. They're not descending like alpine twisties at like 50 miles an hour. Um but triathletes spend a lot of money on gear because we have a lot of gear. And so if we can reduce <laughs> the amount of money spent, but still get the same amount of gear, like that's a net win for triathletes. So kind of the big thing about, and we'll talk about this on our podcast um, with our guest um, from Envy, Jake Pantone. He talks about how disc brakes have actually kind of reduced this R&D cost that used to be just so prohibitive to new wheel brands. Um, I mean, he talks about it on the podcast that they spent seven years and just millions of dollars making sure that their rim brakes didn't basically explode tires. And that, and that's the thing, like, like when rim brakes go wrong, they don't just squeal or, you know, not slow you down quick enough. They can definitely do that. But if they go real wrong and there's videos of this all over the internet, like wheel companies, oh, don't, don't Google, no, don't Google guys. Alone. It's, it's an, it's a horrible rabbit hole, but Companies just get destroyed because, you know, their their rim brake tracks will heat up and blow up tires. And then you have these awful catastrophic, you know, events. Um, so once you take kind of the braking off the rim itself, not only is that good because now you're braking on metal, which is way more predictable. Um, you know, it's why cars have disc brakes. You know, you can ride them in the rain and they'll be good. Uh but you're also kind of removing this giant barrier to entry, the seven year millions of dollars thing that Envy put in just as an example um, is no longer present. So you're getting small companies like Hunt's a good example. Um, both Triathlete and VeloNews has been testing Hunt wheels. And these are like sub $1,500 wheels that, you know, are super lightweight. They have good performance, um, but they're a, fairly new brand and they're not going to cost you an arm and a leg. And a lot of that has to do with the disc brakes. 
basically. So so it's made it so that a lot more companies, a lot smaller companies can kind of get in, kind of test things out because they basically there's like less to worry about now. Right. They can just stick stick a disc on there <laughs> and it breaks. See, that's that was also what I thought. And Jake kind of set me straight <laughs> a little bit there, too, because I was like, oh, yeah, slap a disc on there. It's no problem. And and he did say that there, you know, you get some different forces um, because now you're throwing all the braking into the hub, whereas before it was on the rim. So right. In a big failure, which I don't believe happens very often, but you get a big failure and you send all that braking force to the hub and it can, it could rip the spokes out of the rim itself. But <laughs> I think, all right, like, like that also sounds horrifying. Like imagine you have no spokes anymore. Um, but he, he, he did kind of say, you know, that doesn't happen as much. Those are easier to manage. Um, and Envy had some, some actually really interesting ways of handling that, that spoke force. Um, and he sent me straight too. that was one interesting thing we talked about was, uh, you know, I was like, oh, well, I'm sure because you guys work with mountain wheels, you know, mountain wheels are way harder on braking and stuff like that. And he, he actually said, it's not true at all. He said, in fact, road wheels take a lot more braking force, but, um, You'll have to listen to the podcast to learn more about that. You'll have that. to listen to the podcast. Okay. So you had uh, Jake from Envy on to talk all things wheels, disc brakes, braking forces, how much it really costs to make a carbon wheel. Yeah, that was a little scary. Not as much as you think. No, it's not. <laughs> um, yeah, the materials that go into a carbon wheel, I'm not going to spoil it. You're going to have to listen to it. But it's it's pretty small. Yeah. Think more like a tri-suit. <laughs> Oh, man. Uh, and, and then you guys, obviously, you're going to do a podcast every month. And so we're not going to talk about carbon every month. You're going to have other topics <laughs> in the future, right? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, our, our next one after the uh, Carbon Wheel podcast is going to be all things shoes. Um, so we'll have a special guest uh, expert on shoes, just kind of talking about there's been a lot of wildness with shoes in the last year. Um, so we're going to try to break that down for our listeners, too. Oh, man. So if you guys want to get super in the weeds on gear, uh, Gear Up is our new podcast from Triathlete. Once a month, last Monday of the month, it's on all of our feeds. Subscribe and uh, and go listen to this first episode about carbon wheels before you, you know, head out in the rain on your disc brakes. <laughs> yes. And so you'll, you'll be knowledgeable when you see your friends out on your ride, uh, whether it's virtual or otherwise, you'll have some actual like information to share and you can make them look <laughs> stupid because that's super important, right? That's why we all listen to podcasts. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> you don't want to miss anything we have coming. Subscribe to Triathlete Magazine on iTunes, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts to get all of our latest right in your feed. Along with the Triathlete Hour, which features interviews with key figures in the sport, we have a bi-weekly training podcast, Fitter and Faster, which tackles tough training questions to get you fitter and faster. And we'll soon be launching a gear podcast to dive into all of your equipment questions. Plus, you can get the audio from all our triathlete live shows where readers are able to ask big names their own questions. All that on our Triathlete Magazine podcast feeds on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and SoundCloud. Keep listening. All right, this week we're talking to one of the legends of the sport, three-time Kona winner, five-time world champ, Craig Alexander. And thanks for joining us from Sydney, Craig. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for the invite to come on and have a chat. Yeah, and so so what does life look like for for Crowy these days? Is it you know, wine and, and cookies? Are you still training a lot? How is how is it all in Australia? Well, it's wine and cookies and beer and coffee, but um 
I still tr- I still train. I think uh, it's part of my DNA. I, I love to train. I've always been fit and healthy. Even before I was a triathlete, I was always active and um, playing different sports. So yeah, I think I'll always I'll always train. I've got three kids now, and they're very active. So um, chasing them around, doing all their various sports and activities, which is a lot of fun. Um, but yeah, no, I keep the. Uh, I keep the training sort of bubbling along at a decent level, uh, even with the swim bike run. Um, and I, I mean, I haven't really, obviously no one has raced because of the right. pandemic, but la- last year I was able to race, still able to race five times. And I mean, it's not, not what it used to be where training and racing was the priority and the whole year would be structured around that. It's, it's more now I, I train to stay in shape and for mental health, quality of life. And I guess the benefit of 25 years of good training base, having that aerobic foundation is it, it doesn't take too much work to get in great shape. So yeah, I was able to jump into a few races last year and um, still love to do it. But my, my priorities these days are a little different to what they used to be. I'm, I mean, I, I'm an ambassador for a few different charities. I've got a little coaching business, um, and I'm still very lucky. I have 12 loyal companies who I'm a brand ambassador for, and I do a lot of promotional work for them. So, yeah, still very busy. Right. I mean, you say, like, oh, I jumped into a race, but I'm pretty sure you won a couple of those last year, even at, you know, 46 <laughs> years old, right? I did, yeah. I was lucky I had a few wins, and um <laughs> I guess that's just the the competitor. When you when, when you're a competitive person, you as much as I enjoy the training, I, I love the competition. Um, and when I race, it's I don't I I never set myself um, I guess expectations around. Well, I have to win if I race. It's it's more I have to perform at a good level and a level that I know I'm capable of. That's for me. That's how I structure it. Uh, that's how I set up the expectations and. I still like to race the best people. Um, so mm-hmm. I, I certainly don't, I don't race globally um, in the US or Europe as much as I used to. It's more sort of in the Asia Pacific region, but it's against the best guys running around down here. So yeah, you still get to scratch that competitive itch. So I guess a lot of people are wondering if you're, I mean, you wouldn't consider yourself retired. Are you ever going to retire? Are we, are we going to see like Craig Alexander <laughs> at 50 still winning things? Um. What does retire? Yeah, I mean, you can't retire from life. So True. I, I don't. I mean, I don't think I'll ever come out and put out an Instagram post or something saying, "Oh, I'm retired." Or I mean, I, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I sort of just take it year to year. Okay. Um, when I'm still training, and like I say, I keep the training going at a sort of a maintenance level. But if there's a period of time where there's very few family commitments and no traveling and I'm able to really dial the training up for six or seven weeks, it, I get into really good race shape and I decide to race. So um, I don't want to sort of put boundaries or limit. Okay. Yeah, I label it or put limitations around that as if to say, well, I'm not going to do that anymore. I mean, if, if the opportunity arises and I'm in good enough shape where I think I can be competitive, then, yeah, I'd love to race again. Yeah, I guess I guess they're, you're like making some people nervous about being 60 years old and, you know, going for Kona. Um, it sounds like no. it sounds like what you love 
is you love racing. You love the comp- competition. How do you keep it interesting? You started back in 1993, I think was your first track. So it's a long time. How do you keep yourself motivated and keep it interesting year after year? Yeah, I think it was actually 94. Okay. It was around that time. <laughs> I did. I was doing all, what we used to, well, they're now called aquathons, but we used to, in Australia, we used to call them biathlons, swim run races. And I think I did about well, nearly 12 months worth of those. Um, but that was, I think, in 93. And my first actual triathlon was 94. But I mean, I just, <clears throat> I guess you have to, you have to know yourself and variety is interesting. It's fun. It's, it's good to mix things up. And for, for the longest time, I was able to keep it interesting by just by change, changing training locations. Hmm. Um, you know, the way the season was structured for me, I would spend five or six months of the year in Australia and then for uh, the other six months in, in the Northern Hemisphere, so usually the US in the latter part of my career. So that in itself made it interesting, just changing training locations, getting to go back to a lot of your favourite training haunts that you hadn't been to for six months. Uh, right. You know, I always looked forward to that. So, But also, I guess, <clears throat> my personality as well, I, I, I never really minded the grind of training, even if it got monotonous. For me, that was part of the process was, you know, that consistent grind day after day, physically and mentally. I think that was part of the process of getting ready for races. So I sort of always embraced that, that side of it as well. Um, but there's always little things you can do to mix it up. You know, change your sessions around to make it more social, jump into different groups, different master squads for swimming, master's programs, um, you know, mix your, your riding and your running up. So you're, you're training with different people so and different groups. So I think there's always ways you can make it fun. And, you know, the way I used to train with the periodization, it was never the same sessions week after week for 52 weeks of the year. You were, you know, you were always sort of changing and progressing your program a little bit depending right. on what time of the year it was and, and what was coming up. So, yeah, there's a sort of a natural variety that's always built into it as well. And I think that, you know, it's, it's interesting. <clears throat> I think as humans we, we tend to adapt to something and maybe get bored with it. So I guess with the training side of it, you might do a four- or six-week block of something and, you know, you're coming to the end of it and you're really looking forward to changing up the training to something else. You might be moving into a more race-specific phase, so you're upping the intensity more race simulations or brick sessions. Um, yeah, so things are always sort of changing and that keeps it interesting as well. Yeah, and so you still do all that kind of like shifting things around now, um, it sounds like. I do, and and there's no rhyme or reason to it now. <laughs> there's it no rhyme. Be, uh, I just do it when I want to do it. I, I fancy a bit of that kind of training, so I go and do it. And Whereas before it was more planned and structured right. around, I did the right things at the right time. Yeah, As built the built the. St- yeah, no, that makes sense. No, I was thinking about as when you were still structured and focused as you got older, how did you adapt your training for, you know, age and like what kind of changes did you have to make? Yeah, I think you just, you don't recover as well. Mm-hmm. So I think your heart and lungs from an endurance standpoint, I think it's well recognized that you, your heart and lungs are still, they still maintain a very high level into your 30s late 30s 40s um even late 40s i don't i don't think there's too much drop off there but obviously it's the the body the musculoskeletal side your your bones and joints your muscles um testosterone production goes down you're not as strong probably not as quick as you get older into your 40s so there needs to be more of a focus on 
on the I think the strength and speed elements rather than just the the volume, mm-hmm. um, and also more of a focus on recovery. But it's it's hard because I think what goes hand in hand with that is a mental acceptance that the training needs to change. And, and that's the part I really struggled with because I, I used to love the process of preparing for Kona and those really big training weeks. I would do a couple of really big blocks, two, two big blocks in a year of four or five weeks each. And it's hard to sort of give that up okay. um, because you, <clears throat> I think it becomes a successful recipe. So you, tend to lean on it it becomes almost a safety blanket there's an element of it that I used to actually love I really looked forward to those those periods um so you don't want to you never want to stop doing something that you like to do and and it's I wouldn't say it's an ego thing but you know it's it's hard to accept that you're getting old and you have to change especially when you've had success doing something a certain way there can be maybe a bit of risk built in changing things up and I think that's the part I struggled with the most. I just wanted to keep things. Maybe I just didn't want to accept I was aging. I didn't want to accept I was getting old. I was in denial. Maybe that was it. I, I don't oh, no. know. But um, yeah, I, I just, I, I guess the last couple of years I did Kona, I just, I didn't want to really give up the training that I used to do because I just enjoyed it. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I think though, if you, if you really want to be successful as you age, you, you do need to accept that there are physical changes that take place and you need to factor that in. And the main one is recovery mm-hmm. um, and, and the strength and speed elements of your training. You, you need to factor in that they're going to drop off. So you might need to focus on those things and, and focus that extra recovery in, in as well because those two elements do require recovery even when you are younger. The, the strength and speed training are are very taxing on your body, even more so as you get older. So, but I guess the the other side of it is that as you age, and hopefully you have accumulated many years of really good training, um, you know your body that 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 foundation doesn't leave you. So you don't you don't need to train the way you used to. Um, so there's you know it's not all as they say, getting old is not for sissies. It's not all bad. Um, you know, you've got that good training base. Each year you're building on a foundation that you've been working on for years and, um, you know, that stays with you. So you don't have to do the things that you used to do either. Right. And so and so you then can, like, spend some more time on speed or strength and recovering from that as opposed to just putting out hours and hours of volume, it sounds like. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. That, that, that's the theory for sure, yeah. So mm-hmm. you, you drop the volume, you drop the volume a little bit and focus on the speed and, and strength, but also factor in the extra recovery as well. Right. And when you say like it takes longer to recover, I mean, what kinds of, you know, aches and pains do you get that you didn't used to get uh, after a race? Just a lot more muscle soreness. Yeah. Um, I never, I was always lucky. I was blessed with good biomechanics. So I didn't really get injured. I, I had a few enforced layoffs, but they were more illnesses like hmm. um cmv virus or the chicken pox things like that i didn't really get <laughs> muscular you, <laughs> sorry oh i was like you got the chicken pox that uh that stopped you from from training for a while it did yeah oh, I got it as an adult and it's yeah it's it's nasty nasty little virus when you get it i didn't have it as a 
as a kid, so I didn't get the antibodies or the uh, however your body builds that immunity. Right. And yeah, so that put me out of training for months, two or three months. Oh, man. Um, back in 2002, yeah. And so the layoffs I had were more, I also had a respiratory virus in 2011 at the beginning of the year. So, um, but yeah, from a, I guess, a musculoskeletal standpoint, I, I, I was lucky to have good biomechanics and I always worked very hard in the gym on the strength and conditioning um, so that I would have, you know, what I would consider good functional movement patterns, which led to good efficiency in the race, but also less injuries, more and more of an injury prevention. Um, So I didn't really get too many aches and pains, certainly didn't have any issues with joints or, um, but I think it's inevitable as you get older, yeah, the body breaks down and I, I just get, for instance, after a hard run on a, on the track, a track session, I just get much more muscle soreness. Um, you know, I know when I'm in the gym now and I still try and get in the gym at least twice a week, if I have some time out of the gym because for whatever reason I'm traveling or just busy doing other things with life at the moment and then I, I get back into the gym, those first couple of sessions back I get that delayed onset muscle soreness. Right. Uh, worse than I ever used to get it, um, almost to the point where it's, it's my muscles are so tender a day or two after that first session back that I can't even touch them. And so things like that, you, you, I think you have to consider as you get older that I never really had issues with, even in my late 30s. Um, and I would, I would do a hard session or on the track or a hard session in the gym or even a, a really long, hard swim session and you might have a bit of, you know, after. Uh, I, mean, I guess swimming is different because it's a non-weight bearing sport. Right, but right. I would still do a, a six or seven k swim session, and I might be, I might have tired and sore shoulders that evening, but I was still able to go and swim the next day, um, and and swim through it. Whereas, yeah, after probably forty two or forty three years of age, I would have to start. To, I had to start swimming sort of every second day. Um, so just just things like that. Okay. You just you don't. You just don't recover. You just don't bounce back and recover the way that you did. Um, or I, I can only speak for myself, but yeah, even in my late thirties and even up to forty, I, I thought I was still able to train pretty much the same way I had throughout my mid thirties to mm-hmm. late thirties. But um, yeah, at some point, I think that that muscle breakdown, um, yeah, and your muscle mass decreases a little bit. Um, Right, and I started getting a few aches and pains in the joints too that that I'd never really had. What do you do for that kind of? Th- I mean, <clears throat> I guess you just rest more. <laughs> yeah, I just try and listen to my body. You just right. got to be smart and just try and rest a lot more, more recovery. Um, Makes sense. And and just you just got to be really. The two things that I always think I did well mm-hmm. with recovery was sleep well and eat well. I, I tried to have really good sleeping patterns and I tried to as much as I would you know I'm known for a little bit of chocolate here and there and maybe a little ice cream and I I did I did try and do the right things nutritionally as well to to refuel and replenish my body um for sure and and now I, I think I'm just a lot more focused on extra things as well supplements and other things to try and to try and speed up that process and and help it um you know, I, I think you, you – and, look, I was always big on the supplements anyway. There's things you can do. When you're training very, very hard, I think the, the cornerstone is is a good balanced 
uh, eating plan, mm-hmm. but you can sup you can supplement as well. And um, by taking, I guess, proteins and amino acids to you know they're the building blocks of muscles and help with recovery. And you know, one thing I've been taking more recently is this product called TRR Pro Advanced Collagen, and um, specifically for my joints and bones. And it was something I learned about. Uh, 25 years ago, I was a physio student about, you know, joint nutrition, um, things like glucosamine and, and things like that. But I think with this this new product, the TRR Pro Advanced Collagen, it's it's kind of like a shot of collagen that you take. And, and um, you know, I like to keep up to date with what the, what the theory and the science is. I, I sort of come from a science background, I guess, right. with that um, degree, um, that Bachelor of Applied Science degree I did all those years ago. Um, <laughs> And, you know, I think the, the current way of thinking is with, with collagen, it, there's huge benefits to be had in terms of just joint health, bone, bone and joint health. And I think that if you want to be active, you know, into later life, and I certainly do, I mean, you have to pay attention to all, all those things. So, yeah, just try to keep up to date with what the latest research is suggesting and mm-hmm. um, what, the latest, what the latest trends are and, um, yeah, particularly things that are really backed in science. I was going to ask you if you like keep up with the sport still. I mean, do you follow? Do you like go to Kona? Every, I mean, obviously not this year because this year's very weird. But are you on top of everything? Do you like still read all the news, or is it just kind of, you know, that was something you did before? No, I mean, I'm I, I'm, I'm certainly not. Uh, I, I do follow the sport as a fan, and I follow the athletes. So who's mm-hmm. racing well? Who's winning the big races? Okay. Um, I love I love the sport and I love the high performance aspect of the sport. So I like to see. So yeah, I mean, I, I never really stopped doing that. Even when I didn't, when I stopped racing Kona and seventy point three Worlds and a lot of the bigger races around the place, I still, I would love to follow all the big races and, and watch them live online when I could. Um, and yeah, had have been to Kona every year since I haven't raced there. So I think that's been six or seven years now. So I, I love going to miss it this year as no doubt yeah. all the athletes will feel feel really bad right now for for the athletes and the industry for Kona itself because I know it's a a big injection of um, money into the economy around race week so all the businesses and I mean unfortunately you can't control a lot of things so I mean it is what it is you just got to I think we've all just got to look forward to next year now but no doubt the athletes will be gutted at the moment um, but you know I follow the sport I like to I don't. I wouldn't say I um, delve into the the research as much as I used to. When I was training, I would always try and keep up to date with, you know, good okay. articles around latest training techniques, um, mm-hmm. the techno the technology around the sport, wind tunnel testing, all that stuff. You know, resi- yeah, all, all the stuff I'd try to keep up to date with, or I would have people close to me who are up to date with all of that stuff. And now I, I limit my my research to social media. That's all I have time for. <laughs> oh, no. So you're getting all your tips on Twitter now? That's not good. <laughs> well, no, I know. I don't know how accurate a lot of it is, but I just guess I, I thought I, I kind of thought that's what everyone's doing these days. Everyone's doing their research on social media. So I thought, oh, well, I'll do the same. Excellent. Sounds like a great plan. How do you yeah. think? Uh, I mean, obviously, you've been in the sport for a long time. You've been to Kona every year, even since you stopped race. How do you think it's changed? What have you seen change about? you know, both the sport at the top level, but also kind of like globally. It's a lot bigger globally than it was when you started. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, things seem to go in cycles, but okay. 
I mean, I, I remember watching big triathlons on TV in Australia before I'd ever done one. I, I remember watching St. Croix, that famous race on TV, mm-hmm. uh, Chicago, the Chicago try, Alcatraz. I remember watching a lot of those races on television down here in Australia before I'd ever done a triathlon. Um, and, of course, I was lucky enough to go and do most of those races. So it seemed to be big in the late 80s and early 90s. And and then it was big in Australia throughout the 90s too. We had a nationally televised series, mm-hmm. um, which was called the Formula One series or Grand Prix series, which is now what the, the current Super League has been modelled right, on. Right, right. I was going to say they always bring that up when they talk about Super League. Yeah, so that that was where it started. It originated. We all came up doing the Formula One series in Australia. Um, it was the brainchild of a a promotions company down here. They put it on, and it went for about eight or nine years, maybe ne- nearly a decade. It ran for. It was awesome racing, and you know, as a young athlete, I got to race all my heroes and idols in that series, and so all the best Aussies race there, and and all the best international people came out to race. Um, so, and then that, <clears throat> that series sort of ended in 2003, 03, 04. And I, I came to the US in 02. So the, the scene in the US was still flourishing. At that point, you had <clears throat> a huge circuit of big city races like Chicago, LA, um, St. Anthony, St. Croix, um, New York, Boston. And then you had, you know, into the mix, you could have had the the big money races that came along like Lifetime Fitness in Minnesota and and High V right, uh, right. in Des Moines. So, <clears throat> and those you know those two races in particular, uh, I think Lifetime Fitness and High V they they came with NBC live coverage. So I think that was great for the sport. Um, but things seem to go in cycles. So, you know, I think that that North American circuit, which was the cornerstone of our sport for probably thirty years, you know, it started off as I think I read it was the Bud Light series. Right, back in the day, yes. yes. Back in the day, it was the the USTS series, and then it got remodeled into other things, um, Accenture. and Mm -hmm. um, But things, sports evolve and change, and I think with the advent of the Olympics, when triathlon first got into the Olympics, it was a full medal sport, but there was some talk it might not stay in there. And But now, 20-odd years later, and five olympics later it's it's i think it's very well established as as an olympic sport and and that's been great for our sport i think and so now with with the short course racing being so entrenched with with the itu style of racing there's probably not a a need for those other big races and that those other circuits like there used to be um so i've seen that change um but i think things things just evolve and grow and right and I think it is more global now, I, I guess, with, with it being in the Olympics. Um, you know, Kona has always been a big thing. Mm-hmm. And, and, I, I, and what, I, what I noticed too is when, I guess, I think with, with the Germans dominating the last few years in Hawaii, I think it brings a, a bigger audience to the sport because I think the sport, uh, particularly Ironman, is huge in, in Germany and in Europe. Oh, I yeah. Mean, they, it's giant, right? Yeah, so they, they they televise the whole race in, in Kona Live all day um, <laughs> on German television. And so I think that's huge for our sport when, you know, when there's a when, when a German's winning um, in Kona. Um, but I guess the big changes I've seen from a performance standpoint is just a lot of the technology. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, you know, all this wearable technology now with, with the watches and um, – 
power meters for running now as well as cycling and, and the way we um, we we gather this data with the wearable tech and then you up, upload it somewhere to a to a software platform and you know you, athletes can be coached remotely there's yes. all these different software platforms that interpret the data as well um, so around sort of I guess that coaching element and the way we we track we capture track the data and then analyze it I think that's changed and do you think that's good or bad it sounds like you're a little like I don't know it's good and bad <laughs> I think it's good if the person interpreting the the data knows how to interpret it I mean because the end game is still about going quicker it's about getting faster mm-hmm. so there's no point having a whole dashboard full of options of information if you don't know what any of them mean but if, if as, as an athlete you understand what it all means and if, if your coach or your advisor understands what it all means and can change your training accordingly based on the information that they're getting, I think it's a great thing. Um, but I also think what, what what's always undervalued is an athlete's own intuition as well and feeling, how they feel. There's their sort of subjective feeling of how a session's going, um, how they're progressing within a session and over – overall throughout a program, um, I think you need both. And that's where I think the technology can help. You know, back in the day, it used to just be more athlete intuition. Things were done more on um, rate of perceived exertion rather than right. the, the objective data of power and heart rates and heart rate variability and all of these things. I, I think they all have their place. And in a perfect world, if you use both, you're in a much better place than just using one or the other. So, um I'm, I'm, I'm all for the technology in that respect, so long as the people interpreting the, the data know what it means um, and not just having all this feedback for the sake of it. And you and coach then, like a dozen people, right, give or take? Yeah, <clears throat> we've, got a, we've got a little coaching business here. So my coaches do the coaching. Um, mm. But, yeah, the athletes have access to me through sort of um, Facebook hookups and, and things like that. And my main role with the business is we run camps. Oh, okay. Um, okay. Or, we, or we did pre-pandemic <laughs> run some camps. Um, yeah, and I would go to all the camps. So we, we've run camps in, in the U.S., in, in Boulder, in Kona. We've done some in Asia, some in Australia. We've been up in Canada. We've run a few in South America. So yeah, we've we've done them all over. We've we've run one, uh, a couple in Mallorca, actually in Spain. So um, yeah, really good, good, good stuff. But uh, I guess the other back to your earlier question, mm-hmm. the other um, change is just the the technology around equipment. I mean, I think the last five to ten years, bikes, bike technology, aerodynamics, um, just incredible. Um, you know. You can get a very comfortable position that's very aerodynamic now, and you don't have to have one at the expense of the other. The way the bikes are designed, obviously around the aerodynamics, but also with practicality and, and functionality in mind. So all the sort of the hydration and the nutrition storage is integrated into the frame, right. um, which you know you don't have to tape gels onto your top tube anymore or stuff your pockets full of food. And yeah, so things are just more. I guess aero, but also practical and functional, um, and also like we're on the bike, the rolling resistance. I think wheels, tires. What we know about rolling resistance and proper different pressures that you're running your tires. Um, yeah, I mean, isn't that the things. whole like rolling resistance is the new aerodynamics? That's the thing everybody's focused yeah, on now. Ab- yeah, ab- absolutely. So what 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 an appropriate tire pressure is to run on a certain rim 
um, the width of those um, of wheels and tires, and, and also like ceramic bearings, just less friction, just less resistance. You know, minimizing friction on a bike, so on the chain, on the bearings in the bottom bracket, and the jockey wheels and the pedals. And I just think of you know our lives have been infiltrated with technology across the board, and it was a matter of time until it it went into sport as well. So yeah, I think it's a good thing. I think it's a really good okay. thing. Okay, you sounded like a little skeptical, but you're like you're you think it's pretty good. <clears throat> no, I'm I'm on board. I'm I'm not a dinosaur. <laughs> well, I was the reason I was asking about coaching is because I was wondering if you kind of mentor or coach any like up and coming pros right now. Like, do you? I'm sure people come to you and say, you know, I want to win Kona. What would you, what advice? Like, what should I do? Do you like have advice for them? Do you tell them? <clears throat> something? That's a good, yeah. yeah, I've been asked by a lot of people. I yeah. would imagine a, a lot of. A lot of um, a lot of athletes, professional athletes, have asked me. Um, some of the best in the world, and <laughs> I, I didn't do it only because after you know a very full-on career for a long period of time. Part of the reason I stepped away from from Kona when I did, and and a lot of that high-level racing was. Just, I think, at some point, you need to move on to something else in your life for your own mental health, but also for the mental health of your family oh. and and those those around you, um, because it's such a big commitment from everybody um, in your group, and that starts with your family, but then also advisors, sponsors, um, managers, coaches, or all of those people. It's 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 a huge commitment, like three hundred and sixty five day of the year commitment. And it's all consuming, really. And I, I just I needed to step away from it. I thought I thought it was the right time to do it. Um, and so after making that decision that I, I just didn't want to have that level of commitment, I didn't think it was fair to commit to helping an athlete because I think if you're helping an athlete, you have to have that level of commitment as well. Hmm. Um, otherwise, you're doing them a disservice if if you're just floating in and out of this, you know, their sort of their life and their career. I think you, yeah, I don't know. I guess there's different ways to do it, but for me, I can only sort of see one way, and, and we're all different. I guess there's there's no right or wrong way. It's it's more what's right for each individual and 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 each coach athlete relationship. Um, <clears throat> Yeah, I just I thought I would be doing athletes a disservice if I just disappeared, you know, off surfing for two months. And um, <laughs> you know, I, I think you need to be there, right? Uh, maybe okay. not, maybe maybe not every day, but if, if someone's trying to win Kona, you, you sort of need to be there every week. Um, so yeah, that that was the reason I just decided I didn't think it would be fair to 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 say to any of these athletes, yep, yeah, yeah, I'll help you out, and then. Mm-hmm because it was the easy thing to do at the time. And, and look, it's an interesting project and something I'd love to do in the future for sure. But, yeah, just at that point, I, I didn't think it was the right time. Okay. Do you ever – so I get, I totally get that. You don't want to – you know, you can't, like, take someone under your wing. Do you ever give any, any of the up-and-coming pros advice, though? Do you ever tell them, like, here's a thing I wish I had known? Or, or are you just trying to, like, let them find their uh, own way? A, a bit of both. No, if if, if – Anyone ever comes to me, I always help. I always, <laughs> I always help. I don't, I don't want. It, it's hard to. You know, you can imagine you're in Kona or I'm at a race somewhere, and, and maybe as an event ambassador, and somebody comes up and asks that they have a coach, and right. so you don't want. I, you don't want to tread on toes. Um, I don't want to upset people or 
but if someone comes to me, I'm, I'm always happy. Yeah, I'm, I'm an open book. I mean, I was very lucky in my career. I had so many great mentors and advisors and role models and people I could go to, and they were always very generous and open um, with their information and their time. And, and I try to do the same thing um, with any athlete. So <clears throat> I wouldn't say I'm the kind of person, though, who sits back and sees something and then goes and forces themselves onto someone. Um, I'm more like if they come to me, um, I'm more than happy to help. I uh, would never say no to anyone. So, yeah, I don't – and then that's sort of the way I operated. I didn't <clears throat> I didn't wait for Welshie or McKeely or anyone to come up. I, I went up to them and said, hey, do you mind helping me? Just a young guy, <clears throat> got some questions, and they're always – those two and many more were very <clears> – <throat> very helpful. So yeah, I'm the same. I'm happy to help anyone, but yeah, I think it's a fine, <clears throat> fine balance these days because most athletes have coaches and that's, that's something that's different. You know, mm. there's just way more, there's so many more coaches around than there used to be. I mean, I didn't have a coach or even an advisor early in my career or for the most part of my career, because there just weren't as many around. And it's just a completely different coaching landscape out there. Now, every second person's a coach. So <laughs> you just don't want to, I don't want to tread on other people's toes if, if an athlete's already in a relationship with a coach if they come to me and say oh my coach knows I've approached you and I'm yeah that that's fine I think that's always happy to help um would never say no to any athlete helping them out okay what are uh, what are some lessons you think like what are the questions that you asked when you were overcoming and what do you wish you had known you know when you were a baby pro um I think I asked all the questions I needed to ask. I asked um, all the well, that's good. And so some of the, some of them, you, they're not always apparent. You know, they become apparent as you go down that path of um, changing a training around. I know, I know when I decided to step up in 07 and race Hawaii for the first time, I qualified by winning the 70.3 Worlds in 2006. Um you know, I started asking Walsh and McKeeley some questions and a few other people. And and then as you start the training and you head down that road, more and more questions, every sort of question you ask poses 20 more. Um, so, yeah, I think I asked all the questions. It's just around how, structuring a season, okay. um, how, to set, how to set up a training week. And what you learn is there's, there's no real secrets. Like I, I asked a lot of different people and many of them had one in Kona and the there's a lot of similarities mm-hmm. in, in the, the way they set up their training. Um, some differences as well, and, th- and that's always going to be the case. I just think we're all different. Physiologically, we're different. Um, we're different emotionally and mentally. Some people like to race more. Some like to race less. Part of that is a mental thing. Some people like to disappear and just do the training, and maybe there's a mystique about them when they turn up in Kona. Others just like to race a lot because that's what they like to do, so they would race – a little bit more in their build-up to Kona. Um, and what you find out is there's no real right or wrong answers. It's it's working out what's right for you. That That's the big – for me, that's the big takeaway. That's okay. Everyone thinks there's there's a big secret. The, the, the secret is unlocking your own way. Um, you know, and that's not trying to palm off the question and not give a, an answer. That, that is the answer. The answer right. is – the right way for you might not be the right way for the next guy on the start line who's also a contender and the guy next to him who's also a contender. It's it's working out what you need emotionally, mentally and physically and 
Look, I think from the physical standpoint of the training that's required, everybody knows what that is. Mm-hmm. Um, so certainly at the higher level, there's there's different sessions and different ways to periodize and build the training that you can progress to and, and that really give you that extra edge. That, that's a fact. But I, th- I think that's the same in anything. Like get, going 90% of the way is often easy. It's that last 10% that can take many, many years and a lot of expertise. Um, I think that's the same in any sort of skill or undertaking that, you, you know, you often um, get yourself into in life. Get going, you know, you, you're on a steep part of the improvement curve and then all of a sudden you plateau out and you've got to work very hard to get very little incremental improvements. That's just yeah. the way it works. Um, but, yeah, so there's, there's certainly things you, you can help with with your experience. Um, but I just think it's it's working out. Each athlete needs to work out the kind of training they respond best to, and um, being smart and being confident, not not chopping and changing, um, having the confidence to make changes when they're necessary, but not not just for the sake of it, mm-hmm. not not second guessing, having great people around you who you can bounce ideas off or who can have a look at your program. Um, I always felt that was handy, just getting that sort of validation from other people with really good triathlon IQs. Um, I guess the other part of your question, what what advice? Uh, I, I think the advice it's it's probably universal. Is it's just just be resilient, just ride mm-hmm. out the storms when they come because they're coming. Um, <laughs> it's it's not if they come, it's when they come and how often. Just be resilient. But that, I think that's something I brought in to the sport because I came in a little later. Right. Um, I was I was twenty or twenty one years of age. I'd had experiences in other sports where. You know, things didn't go as planned, but mainly it was just because I I probably wasn't as resilient as I should have been. So my only real, um, I guess, motivation coming into triathlon or commitment that I made to myself was just to be more resilient, just batten down the hatches once in a while and, and ride out the storms. And <clears throat> I think that's the advice that I would give anyone. It's just it's going to be a... And you hear people say it all the time, it's a roller coaster, and, and it is. Hopefully it's hopefully it's like the stock market and it's trending up, but there's <laughs> gonna be peaks and you know, there's gonna be peaks and troughs along the way. Um yeah, but if you're in it for the long haul, you've got to ride out the storms and you know. <clears throat> so I, I guess that's the advice I'd give any sort of young yeah. athlete. And um I, I was lucky I sort of had that mindset coming in, but it was right. always it was it was always reinforced to me by everyone. Just, just be tough. Just hang in there. You, can, you can't quit. Um, it's always good to have to have honest evaluation, self evaluation, and, and evaluation by others. Don't take it personally. Um, you know, and that's why you, you you try to get mentors or advisors or people around you who who you respect and who respect you. Because if that's the case, then their advice is always going to be well meaning. It's always going to be from the heart. It's not going to be if if it's criticism or or if it's critiquing. I like that word a little better. It's it's coming from a good place and it's with the only intention of making you better. And I think if if it's someone you respect, sometimes some feedback's hard to hear, um, but it always lands better if you know it's coming from a good place. So surround yourself with those people. That would be my advice as well. Surround yourself with good people who who are knowledgeable and have your best interests at heart because 
you know, when you have those tough conversations, it, their, their message will land a lot better and will um, will infiltrate through your prickly outer exterior and get to a place where you can make some real changes. <laughs> All right. Surround yourself with people who care, who, who are smart, Batten down the hatches, wait out the storm, long term like long term view. These are all see, this is all good advice. So Yeah, well I think yeah. it's you know, endurance sport is like I mean you hear people it's a cliche, you hear people talk about the ten thousand hour rule, whether it's right, right. playing a musical instrument, being a dancer, a painter, being creative or in sport. I mean, who knows how many hours it is, but I think we'd all agree it's a lot of hours. To to become world class, it's a lot of hours. And then once you become world class, it's a lot more hours to to improve and try and be at the upper echelon of world class. So right. it, it is going to be a long-term project. It doesn't matter who you are and how much natural talent you have. It's still going to be a long-term project. So you need to have big goals, challenging goals that make you uncomfortable and that maybe are not going to be realized for years down the track. And you, you probably, if you're so inclined and you need short-term goals along the way, then you need to set yourself some shorter term goals as well. Yeah. I mean, this is, this is like the kind of advice we've been hearing a lot during this pandemic too, right? Because there are no races, there are no, there's nothing on the horizon. So everyone kind of has to figure it out for themselves right now. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, if you're the kind of person who loves to race, it's, it's tough right now. I always felt that having more time is never a bad thing. You just improve. I mean, your goal should be when you come out of this to be a better athlete than when you went into it because you've got plenty of time to work on things. Notwithstanding all of that, there's going to be some mental pressures because if you race for a living and there's no racing, that that's impacting your livelihood. So you can understand the discomfort that a lot of athletes are feeling in all sports right now. So, um, But you can really only, I guess, worry about the things you can control and having more time gives you maybe something that you haven't had previously to work on some weaknesses or to improve your strengths, to improve your overall game. So you come out of this a better athlete than when it started. And I mean, that's, that should be the goal. It's easy to say, I know, especially when there's a a lot of, a lot of other things going on and a lot of uncertainty, but yeah, again, it's, it just comes back to riding out the storm, doesn't it? It's just, this has been a longer storm than most. Right, for sure. And, uh, and it's a tough one. And, and that's, you know, that's just is the reality right now. But that's a good advice. Here's my last, uh, my last question for you. I know you like kind of have to go. How did you get the nickname Crowy? Where did that come from? <clears throat> yeah, so in 96, it was 1996. I've had it for a long time, quarter of a century. Um, I was still at uni, but I'd, I'd done a World Cup race. Um, an IT World Cup race in Auckland, New Zealand, and I, I finished fourth. Um, and I got invited to go and train with the Australian team, the Australian triathlon team. They're, ha- they're having a, the national team were having a training camp down in the mountains uh, in Australia in Threadbow, the Snowy Mountains. It was a, a little altitude camp, and a lot of our best athletes were there. Welshie was there, uh, Craig Walton, Greg Bennett, Loretta Harrop. Jackie Gallagher, um, they were all there training. And one afternoon we had we had the afternoon off training, um, and we were watching we were watching on television. So in Australia we have um, surf Ironman racing, like Baywatch. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I saw it. Yes. I, yes, 
you like run yeah, out so, into the surf and run across the beach and stuff, right? Yeah, yeah. So it's it's very it's very famous down here <laughs> because obviously we have a lot of beaches and it's where all the lifeguards they come up <clears throat> through what they call nippers when they're kids. You train and and then if you're good enough, they have a they have a national series and it's on television. Um, and they're very well known. The athletes who do well, the guys and girls who race in that series are really well known. They're on cereal boxes in Australia, and um, yeah. So we were we were watching it one afternoon at this training camp, and there was a guy racing around. Uh, his name was Jonathan Crow. His name was Crowy, and he was one of the best guys at the time. And yeah, a few of the boys said, "Man, you look like that guy." Um, and yeah, so. As with all nicknames, you don't you don't get to choose them yourself. No. But um, and yeah, I didn't mind it actually. I, I guess there's worse worse things you could be called. But um, yeah, well, she was there. Chris Hill, a few other boys, Trent Chapman. Um, yeah, and they all said, "Yep, yeah, from now on, you're going to be known as Crowy." So, <laughs> and it just stuck. Okay, <clears throat> it stuck. Yeah, and actually, I I did get to meet the real Crowy, Jonathan Crow, and oh. um, we we ironically, I had met him before because he was. He was a few years above me doing physiotherapy um, at Sydney University, so I knew of him then. And, and then later, when I had the nickname, when we had our Formula One or Grand Prix series, um, we partnered up with their um, Ironman series. So we did them all at the same location on the same day. Um, so we would do our triathlon and then they would do their surf Ironman. And, you know, one of the after parties, we got together and, we were comparing how we looked, side profiles, front <laughs> on, and yeah. Um, okay. Yeah, we, we looked very, very similar. So, yeah, the nickname stuck. Interesting. All right. See, there you go. Um, well, thank you so much for talking to us and, and for all of your, you know, kind of insight. And I hope we see you back out of the races next year, you got 10 years from now. <laughs> who knows? Who knows? I'll uh, have to look at, give, give this body a little TLC. It's not as, it's not as fresh and sprightly in the mornings when I wake up as it used to be, but um, yeah, no, I'll, I'll always be at the races for sure. I, I love the sport. I love being involved, love watching. I just love being involved in any capacity, but still love to train as well. So yeah, hopefully I'll, I'll pop up on a start line somewhere. <laughs> we will, we will keep our eyes peeled. Well, thank you so much for, for talking to us. My pleasure. Thanks for taking the time and, and thanks for the invite. Thanks to Craig and Chris and all of you. Stay tuned every week for new episodes and don't miss our Gear Up podcast or our Fitter and Faster training podcast. Keep listening and keep training. 